0: Shalom and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I'm Rabbi J. Telrav, and each week we have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world as an intentional presence and looking for ways to make our lives mean something. Whether you have been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I'm joined this week by Leslie Gare, a friend from my very first moments arriving in Stamford 11 years ago, but I knew of you before I got here, one of my congregants, Of Julia and mine consistently since we've been here. You are a remarkable human and I have enjoyed every conversation. So when I cornered you and suggested that we have this this conversation together today, you were a little reluctant because you're humble, but I'm so glad you said yes. So welcome, Leslie.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Me too. Well, I'm just going to suggest that we open up the way we do in other episodes. I'll just invite you to share a few thoughts with an open-ended question of, tell us about your journey. Tell us how you come to be at this point in your life and what you're thinking about these days. I
1: have no clue how I'm here. I'm a triangulator. I know where I start. I know where I want to go, and I'm in the middle, and hopefully I'll find my way there. Um, But I started out in new york manhattan my parents were married by stephen wise Hmm. i grew up in a religious home had no background whatsoever my girlfriend when i think we were about 15 said she's going to be confirmed at emmanuel so of course i went home to my mother and father said i want to be confirmed and i went to free synagogue and that was my first experience Hmm. rabbi klein did the service and I don't remember him teaching me so much as I remember Professor Binder mm. and his voice. So to this day, when you say, kado, I am up on my, not because of any religious training, but because of the connection with him. Wow. So.
0: Do you remember the, um, the essence of the religious experience that those two men communicated to you? Was there content there, or was it more of a, in your memory, is it more of an emotional it's uh, strictly
1: connection. emotional. The, uh, I remember more um, be, feeling connected
0: to Professor Binder. Mm, mm. It's interesting to think about you coming out of a, as you described it, an a-religious environment and then walking yourself into mm. an explicitly religious environment mm. and uh, and what that must have been like for a 15-year-old. It's quite remarkable.
1: It was. It was. It certainly was, you mm. know. And here I am now. Mm-hmm. I spin the clock forward. I moved to Pound Ridge with my former husband. He knew friends who were at Sinai, and that's why we joined. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So here I am.
0: And what about between Confirmation and Sinai? Was there a connection to, for you to no, organize religion?
1: No. No. Occasionally, we'd go with my former in-laws, mm-hmm. and they were out on Long Island, the five towns.
0: mm mm-hmm. And what about spirituality? Would you describe yourself as someone who's spiritual?
1: Um, No, I would have to say I was a very selfish brat growing up. And uh, I was married at 19, had two babies by the time I was not quite 22. I was totally involved with trying to parent as an only child and trying to figure out my ways for life, mm-hmm. so, wow, and in a difficult marriage, mm-hmm. and during the time of women's lib, starting. Mm-hmm. So,
0: what about today? Would you describe yourself as someone who's spiritual today?
1: Absolutely. Where no did question.
0: that Where did that begin to take shape?
1: Um, I have goosebumps when you ask me that. I remember being in Israel, the first time we went because it was Christmas and the flights were cheap, and. Um, we were fortunate enough to take a jeep trip into the desert and that's, it, it just transformed me. Wow. Um, we're there with, with all the sand and irregular shapes that I couldn't identify. But looking up at the sky, uh, which was larger than the earth, and having a very metaphysical sense of I'm, I'm smaller than an insect and just about as important.
0: I have to imagine that just about every listener can relate to that. There's something about putting ourselves in our place, uh, especially for someone who might have described herself as a self-centered brat, uh, to, to step beyond that is such a profound and common experience. Beautiful. Well, you and I are going to take a look today at a letter from uh-huh. the fictitious Reb Yerachmiel to our beloved Aaron Herschela. And he's going to be t- tackling the idea of Torah. And I have said this about almost every letter till now. This one might be my favorite. This feels to me like one of the most important messages, and you and I will get more into it as we, as we dig in, but I just love this letter. And what you said to me as I walked up today indicates that you also found a lot of important messaging in there. So let's start with a blessing, and then we'll get into the material. Baruch My dearest Aaron Herschel. You are right to say there is much to digest in my last letter, and I will honor your request to move on to something a bit less abstract. Indeed, I'm happy to discuss your next question and investigate with you the nature of Torah. As you know, we Jews use Torah, which means teaching, in many ways. It refers to the five books of Moses, what we call the Chumash, from Chamesh, the Hebrew word for five, we say Torah when we mean the complete Bible. We even speak of a given rabbi's teaching as Rabbi so-and-so's Torah. I will restrict my thoughts to the Torah as humash. Of course, you know very well that I have a very different understanding of Torah than most. But I would caution you against calling my teachings a philosophy. I cannot pretend to have worked out the details of my ideas sufficiently to call them that. They are just the musings of an old man with too much time on his hands and too much pride in his heart. So what is Torah? Torah is the Jewish people's diary of its early encounters with God. It is a blend of myth, legend, history, ethics, and timeless revelation. It tells us where we came from and where perhaps we ought to be going and offers guidance from those who have taken up the journey before us. It's a book whose meanings are as numerous as the people who dare to uncover them. It is my constant companion. Where my colleagues turn to Jewish law for guidance in God's ways, I turn to Torah for insight and meaning into life and how to live it. I know I need to explain all of this, but I want to make something very clear before I do. I want you to know what Torah is not. Torah is not a science book, nor is it a blueprint for social mores. I say this because so many mistake it just for these things. When Torah speaks to us of the six days of creation, are we to imagine six sunsets? The sun itself wasn't even created until the third day. When Torah says we are to murder a rebellious child, are we to take that as the highest expression of human values? Of course not. We have to read Torah in the context of its time and its culture so that we can free the timeless message that is meant for all times and all peoples. Thank God we Jews have never restricted ourselves to a literal interpretation of Torah. We've taught for centuries that each word, each letter has multiple meanings and at least four levels of interpretation. There is peshat, the surface reading of the text. There is Remez, the allegorical reading. There's Drash, the metaphysical reading, and there's Sod, the mystical reading. While no reading can violate the plain sense of the text, that is to say, we cannot argue that God planted a rose bush rather than a tree at the center of Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, but we are free to explore the many dimensions of just what Eden and the tree might mean for us in our time and circumstance. It is this freedom to interpret that keeps the Torah alive And it is the Torah's capacity to speak to us in our time and circumstance that keeps us in dialogue with it. While Torah may reflect the science and morals of its time, it is not meant to be a book of timeless scientific truths nor moral values. What it is is a blending of myth, legend, history, law, poetry, and timeless wisdom. What are the myths of Torah? The stories of Genesis from creation to the call of Avram Avinu, Abraham our father. These are wonder tales of the earliest humans. Are they true? Yes. Are they factual? No. Myth is often the poetic expression of deep truth. Myth is meant to be read over and over again, knowing that each time you read it, you'll find something new in it. A myth is a kind of mirror reflecting the unconscious truths of your own life back to your conscious mind. Myth should be read and honored as great tools for self-knowing, but to insist that they are historical fact is to twist the mirror and distort the message. Legend refers to the stories of our ancestors, from the call of Abraham to the birth of Moshe, our teacher Moses. These, too, are true, even if they're not historical fact. The message of these legends has to do with the way we are to conduct ourselves in the world. Does it matter if Abraham really argued with God over the fate of Sodom? Not at all. What matters Is that Abraham dared to hold even God accountable to the principles of justice? It says in Genesis Should not the judge of all the world do justly? Do you know what a revolution that was in human thought? Before Abraham, gods were all powerful. People quaked in fear of their power. With Abraham, we are given a new way to approach God as friend, and as partner. And as friends, we're obligated to warn each other when we think the other is about to do something wrong. So Abraham argues with God. To save Sodom, maybe. But to save God, absolutely. These legends may reflect history. It's fine by me if they do, and it's fine by me if they do not. Their message transcends the facts of history. Of course, there is real history in Torah, the settling of Israel, the warring of nations and the reign of kings. This is the history of our people, and we should know it. Without memory, a nation cannot stand. And there is law, which tells us the values and virtues our ancestors upheld. And there is wondrous poetry in Torah, the Psalms, the Song of Songs, but none of these touches the power of the divine revelations the Torah contains. What do I mean by revelation? Revelation is the teachings that reflect the foundation principle of all Judaism. That is, lechaim, to life. Let me explain. Our sages taught that Abraham kept all the laws of the Torah How is this possible, since he lived centuries before the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai? One sage taught that Abraham lived by a single principle that underlies all of Torah. Abraham performed acts that would deepen our love of God and creation. And Abraham refrained from acts that would lessen our love of God and creation. In this, he lived the foundational principle of Judaism. The acts that deepened our love of God and creation are acts in touch with Lachayim. So, how can we apply this to our search for revelation in Torah itself? Any teaching found in Torah that lifts you out of your self centeredness, brings you closer to God, and places you in a godly relationship with the world, that is revelation based in Lachayim. Any teaching found in Torah that focuses on selfishness, distances you from God, or lifts you above the world and places you in conflict with it, that is not Lachayam, but the workings of ego. If you are paying attention, my dear Herschelah, you will realize that what I am saying is not for the timid. Torah is not from God, but from human beings. It contains divine wisdom, but also human folly. The wisdom is the voice of God's love and speaks for the principle of *lechayim*. The folly is the voice of human fear and speaks for the principle of death, violence, division, exploitation, and the rest of the madness that we humans can inflict upon one another. So for example, when Torah says that we are not to take advantage of the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the blind, it is speaking from love of life. This is divine revelation. But when it commands us to murder the Amalekites, then it speaks from fear and is no longer a revelation. So when it comes to God's commands in Torah, you must be very careful to discern which are l'chayim and which are not, which speak from love and which speak from fear. Only the words of l'chayim and love can be counted on as timeless revelations of God. The rest are the madness of ego masquerading as God. Please do not imagine that I am suggesting you ignore the ego's Torah the Torah that speaks from fear. This would be a terrible error. All of Torah is to be studied, but for different reasons. Study the Torah of love to learn how to act. Study the Torah of fear to learn how not to act. Both Torahs speak to you because both love and fear are a part of you. Honor the first by imitating it. Honor the second by recognizing it in yourself and then controlling it. I wonder if I'm making matters clearer or more confusing for you. You will tell me, I'm sure. But before I close this letter, let me answer two other questions that may be on your mind. Why and how are we to study Torah? Why study Torah? Study Torah because it mirrors the whole spectrum of human truth and behavior from the most sacred to the most sinister. Study Torah because you can see in the violence of our ancestors the evil of which you yourself are capable. Study Torah because you can see in the saintliness of our ancestors the spiritual heights to which you can aspire. Study Torah because you can see in the sorrow and repentance of our ancestors the way to correct error by living justly and with compassion. How to study Torah. Read the myths for grand themes that they convey. Read them as if they were dreams you dreamed the night before. See yourself in the myth and the myth as a map of your life. Ask yourself how the myth sets a course for godliness and see if you can align yourself with its compass. Read the legends for the personal virtues they embody. While not every hero and heroine in the Torah is a saint, each speaks in his or her own way to the struggles of living a life devoted to godliness. See in their lives hints as to how to live your life. Their deeds instruct us even when they do so by making plain the evil that we need to avoid. Read the history for the civic values upon which our ancestors' society was based. Here, too, there is good and evil. Here, too, we find great leaps forward to godliness and equally great falls into wickedness. Be clear as to which is which and honor them both by embodying the first and working to control the second. Read the law for the principles it sought to embody. Do not accept the law as binding simply because it was once so. Ask yourself if it furthers the principle of Lachaim or not. If it does, find a way to adhere to it, in spirit, if not in letter. And if not, note it for what it is and do not become entangled in it. Read the teachings for those timeless truths that speak to all humankind. Again, not everything in Torah is true or holy, loving or kind. Much is false, fearful, violent, and even cruel. Do not flee from the negative or seek to hide in the positive. Listen to the wisdom Torah contains. Just be careful to follow the path of love, even as you work, to curtail the dictates of fear. Shalom, in peace.
1: And all the rest is commentary.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, that's so great. All the rest is commentary. Right. Yeah. And do you remember who said it? Hello. Yeah, exactly. That's the, yeah. the story of someone coming and challenging both Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel to uh, basically refine the Torah down to its essence. And one is insulted at the suggestion that Torah can be refined. And the second, Rabbi Hillel says, what is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. All the rest is commentary, Commentary. now go and learn it. And you just, you perfectly put your finger on it. That's what uh, Rabbi Yerachmiel just did. He refined it down to l'chaim. I love it.
1: I'd like to start in the middle Mm -hmm. because that's where I think that's the beginning for me. When he says, Torah is not from God, but from human beings. It contains divine wisdom, but also human fully. Mm -hmm. So, this goes back many, many, many years for me. Where did God come from? Who created God? God created man, but who created God? So, my sense is, and I said this in humbleness, Mm -hmm. Eve was the first one who took a bite for wisdom. And perhaps in that moment, there was a spark of wisdom that she experienced and recognized, yes, we can lord over animals, but who is over us? Who is going to help us lead a good life? Mm -hmm. We're not omniscient. We're, we don't see everything. We're not all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. We don't live forever. There has to be someone there. There was a sense of humbleness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that she wrapped around her question.
0: Sounds to me almost like you're describing a spoiled brat who lives in, in a self-centered experience of, of Eden and then, you know, Taking a bite of the fruit is almost like, I don't know, being in a desert or something and suddenly seeing it with perspective and putting herself properly in the order of things. And in that moment of revelation, Eve opens up humanity's ability to see right. beyond their, their own small yeah. selves. Yeah.
1: So God is a manifestation, of a figment of man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's where it starts.
0: Yes. I'm very comfortable with that. In, in not, not just that, I, I am very comforted by that. You and I both have family members who were born into the world that you and I inhabit today and found their way into a more traditional experience of the world. And I'm thinking about my cousin and how hearing these words, Hora is not from God, would be very upsetting. It'd be very hard, and this is an interesting conflict that religion sets up for us. Uh, If everybody, frankly, if everybody could pick one approach and stay in that same space, we'd be fine. If the whole world read the text in a fundamentalist approach, we'd be fine. But when we come at it from very different places, it makes it so difficult to discuss, and so when we're when we're approaching Torah the way I think you and I share, it leaves me unsure how to even have the conversation with my cousin because I don't know he'd know what to do with this.
1: Right. You agree to disagree and you talk about other things.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're doing that a lot these days in the world, aren't we? About topics ranging far and wide, just agreeing to disagree and talk about other things. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. that's exactly right.
1: There was something that you mentioned that reminded me until I heard you and, and Mica last week, I thought there was a theme through the whole book of duality, uh, whether it was good or evil, or it was um
0: Yesha Yesha and ain,
1: mm-hmm. and there were a couple of others. But you clearly gave me the aha moment. Of course, it's not one or the other; it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. It's on a line of a continuum, and that has me feeling very good.
0: Yeah. I also, we hear it again in this chapter, and for those who've experienced um, a presentation of Musar, uh, it's there as well. Not only is it a continuation or a continuum, but the poles of the extremes of the continuum are not good and bad. Or, or light and dark, or positive and negative, they simply are. And that's a really important principle for me to, to maintain. So, Cantor said it so beautifully last week. She's always, all of us, I think, have come to the expression of Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara as very clearly good and bad. You know, you want to emphasize the good and, and minimize the bad. And it was a complete um, surprise for Rabbi Shapiro to turn that on its head. It shouldn't have been a surprise because I know that, that envy and pride are not bad. They are. And love and selflessness are not good. They simply are. And you wanna find the right expression in the right moments. Uh, not too much, not too little. Not too much envy, but not too little. Not too much humility, but not too little. And so here too, he's, he's reminding us that in the Torah, there is material that, is, that contributes to lachaim and material that works against it, and we have to embrace it all. We have to confront it and, and use it properly. I think that's fascinating.
1: That's a good directive, for mm-hmm. sure, for mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think of this um, approach also? that both are needed both ends of the spectrum are needed if you only had good and people were trying to perfect it i would wonder whether that would lead to a, a dystopia
0: yeah because what would if if you had that happening it would inevitably lead to what i was hinting at before which is one unified system without room for other perspectives yes. you know if if my version of utopia were to take shape, my cousin would not be happy there. It would not be good for him. It would not be good for much of the world. So something that I think you just said really really made me happy. You said that with the presentation of the continuum, needing both poles of the extremes, that that gave you comfort. I think there's a lot of preconceived notion about religion and religious teachings, fundamentalist truths that have been delivered to us through all the mechanisms that existed. We teach our kids a whole bunch of material, and we deliver a, a very frontal, concrete system of understanding. What I think is so valuable about open secrets and Rami Shapiro is the willingness or the commitment to help people unlearn some of those concretized and constraining ideas. When they don't fit with their worldview, they they feel tension. They either have to leave religion behind because they believe it's not true, or they have to throw themselves in and become fundamentalist about it. And what Shapiro is doing for us is slowly and safely helping us deconstruct, or at least be willing to open up for consideration ideas that are overdue for that kind of examination
1: so my view of reading this book is that for you reading this book could have been almost an aha moment that it fits in and resonates with things you've said on the beamer and in other locations in the temple with other people with what rabbi ben believes Mm -hmm. with what awakenings writes about so this is right in line and correlates with your thinking with that said at different ages you know we can grab hold of information you can't teach this in its form to young kids so it has to be diluted down god is timeless there was a message from last century, there's a message for this century, there's a message for centuries way, way before. Mm-hmm. And what's going on in the culture of that time, I think, has some effect on how people receive it. Whether they're willing mm-hmm. to receive it and what's going on.
0: So so I'm gonna I'm gonna just pick up a couple things you said. I wanna hold on to the thread of what you can teach children and at what age. And I wanna then pull in what you just said about the the timeless message that has to be um, delivered in its time. And so I'm thinking at the moment that the messages around Judaism and God and theology and, and tradition, they are at a turning point. And that's some of what you were referring to with the Awakenings right. conversations we had with Rabbi Spratt's book. Yeah. Um but in some ways, he focused more on the, the function of the Jewish world. Uh, what you and I are talking about are the beliefs of the Jewish world. And they go hand in hand. They've got to. But I wonder if we're not still stuck or getting unstuck from messaging that's a little out of date, a little behind the times. And if I think about the way we talk to our children in religious school today, I wonder how it would sound different if we could really get a good aggregate message of what the kids heard in religious school yesterday morning at Temple Sinai compared to what the kids at Temple Emmanuel in New York City were hearing, uh, you know, when you might have been sitting in those classrooms as a seven-year-old uh, compared to what the kids were hearing in the cheder of 200 years ago. And I find myself wanting to figure out what the next pedagogy looks like. In fact, I've written to several friends who are thinkers in the non-dual world, to Jay Michelson, who we had at Sinai many years ago and who who's written a great deal that's helped me grow, to Rabbi Shapiro, to Aryeh Ben David, who's a magnificent rabbi in Jerusalem who is a major influence on me. I've written to them and said, who out there is writing curricula for the future non dual Jewish communities, because I, you and I both know little kids are incredibly spiritual and they get it. And what would it look like if we didn't have to unteach some of the baggage? It would be really interesting. I've played with it with my own children, and they definitely have a sense of spirituality that is in that realm of non duality. I wonder what's possible in in the classrooms of religious education.
1: That's a very exciting question. And I go back to the book when Eurachmiel says, um, I'm not a philosopher at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, he's saying that out of humbleness. Mm -hmm. I don't know because of the way I believe, how you separate religion, philosophy, and spirituality. Mm -hmm. I think they are
0: all connected. I so agree, and I think so many people, artificially, seek to separate them. And there's a lot of psychology behind doing so. It is why people say, I'm spiritual, but not religious, because they're trying to separate the two. religion as they understand it, has failed to meet their needs. When- so
1: another piece is when I first came to Sarnay, it was gates of prayer. I remember going through the committee meetings, going through the whole process, disenchanted with it, going to change, so now we have a new Siddur, and we're going through the same thing again.
0: Becoming disenchanted with it? No,
1: no, a change. Uh-huh. Not with the Siddur. Mm-hmm specifically. Yeah. But where we are, yeah, in practice.
0: Yeah. You and I can so. can effortlessly think of a couple of examples where we've decided to change the words of the Sidor because they no longer met our needs. Right. right. Hmm. I was at a... that,
1: that's why um, I'll I'll go back to who birthed God mm-hmm. and I'm giving Eve some credit for that. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw this as why not give her credit for it.
0: Why not? I love that. I, I think I mentioned the expression last week, Hiddish, uh, from the, the word Hadesh mm. or um, new. So a Hiddish is a new idea. You gave me a Hiddish this <laughs> afternoon when you suggested that when Eve took a bite of that fruit, the wisdom that came along with it opened her eyes to the reality that she had occupied and not appreciated, which includes the birth of God. And I think that's such a beautiful frame. So yes, let's give her full credit. I'm very comfortable with that.
1: Go for it. Yeah. So that brought me to Revelation. And you can have it with a capital R from God Mm -hmm. or a lower one. And what occurs to me is when you have Revelation, you are revealing something. But it's almost like the tree in the forest. It has to be received,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you have revelation, you have it received, and then it must be remembered. Mm -hmm. So this is all while I'm reading this. (laughs) It's going through my head.
0: No, I love it.
1: And then last week was in Israel was Yom HaShua, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if we were in Israel and we were on the road, We would stop our cars when the silent rings. We would get out and stand silent for two minutes Mm -hmm. in recognition and in memory of the Shoah. So there are two pieces of that. Mm -hmm. It's almost saying Kaddish for those who were lost. Mm -hmm. And in addition, it's a recognition, a memory of the ultimate evil In the 20th century.
0: So let me try a heretical overlay on that. Um, Reb Yerachmiel says, if the stories of the Torah are true, fine. If they're not, I'm fine with that too. He's using them for other purposes. So flash forward, let's say 2,000 years from today, and in our books, in our sacred books, there's going to be a reference to the Holocaust, to the Shoah, and we're already hearing people, uh, hateful people, challenge the accuracy or even the act of the Holocaust in its entirety. So leave those hateful people aside for just a moment. What happens, what does it mean 2,000 years from now when the Jewish community, whatever that is, uh, is thinking back on the ancient history of this, this horrific... Exodus from Europe uh, Or however they choose to frame it Will it matter if the Holocaust Really happened Or if it's just A memory that we hold on to In the same way that we hold on to an Exodus From Egypt And the details There's truth there But is it factual? Yeah, who cares You know, Could you imagine people saying that about the Shoah?
1: Yeah mm. Absolutely So the meat of this chapter of Torah is what he describes, how you can access it through the myths, through the legends, the poetry, and so on. So if it became a myth, there's still something to learn from it. I mean it it pains me, it makes me to cry to think, because I am so close to when it happened. Mm -hmm. But there's meaning and value in it. As he's describing in the myths, so yeah. how can I discredit that yeah. using it as a myth? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not comfortable saying that.
0: Uh, neither am I, and there is no myth in the Holocaust. We should be very clear. But as a as a thought exercise, it is interesting. The first time I was. Exposed to Shapiro's presentation of Torah is in another book of his called Holy Rascals Which is a book I highly recommend everyone read. It's playful. It's irreverent and he, he taught me this idea first there, which is There's holy stuff in Torah and there's unholy stuff in Torah and you have the responsibility to figure out which is which
1: um, You've often said God was an immature God at the time we wrote Torah. And what you're talking about now and where you are is we are somewhere in our maturity relative to where people were when Torah was written.
0: Yeah, Yeah. well the universe is what it is. Uh, Some self-centered little girl, a brat I believe, would have gone out into the desert and looked up at the sky 3,000 years ago and understood in some ways the same truth. they couldn't have had a scientific understanding of just how right. big right. the universe is but They understood how small they were yeah. So that that truth hasn't changed but our ability to articulate it and relate to it continues to change So yes if to that maturity we're in a new place today What's exciting about it is that we have enough maturity to realize that we are only mid-process That we're, we're still growing You mentioned when I sat down that you saw my email earlier today about a survey of belief that I sent out to the congregation. It's market research, and the essence of this survey is to try to figure out what does our Temple Sinai family believe. And I think that they're going to show fairly decisively that we don't still hold on to a biblical notion of God. I believe that's going to give me the mandate to teach a little bit more modern message. And the more we teach it, the less entrenched we'll find ourselves in in outdated theology and at the same time i have to be exquisitely careful not to leave anyone behind and not to alienate or make someone feel like there's no place in the judaism of temple sinai for them well are there other um other ideas Um, that you wanted to make sure we cover this afternoon
1: i think you know he says at the first place this It seemed to me that this letter was written specifically with a beginning, a middle, and an end that I didn't sense in the others. I also sensed in this a passion in how he was presenting the information Mm -hmm. that I didn't pick up in the other ones.
0: I agree. And it was longer than the previous letters.
1: I was looking how many pages. Yeah, absolutely. He had a lot to cover.
0: And just like... I was saying earlier that there's a necessity, if we're going to be able to explore these new ideas, there's a necessity to either unlearn the the transmitted wisdom of our childhood, or at the very least recognize that it's okay to open it up for exploration and, and examination. And so the beginning of this chapter is him saying, let's start with talking about what Torah is not. And I think that was important. That was right. him saying, I don't claim that Torah is a science book or a history book. So let's leave that off the table. Then he can get into the ideas of, of the meat of this chapter.
1: So there he is presenting one of the two ends of the continuum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And this is so very important. The passion you described is so very important to him because without the authority to honestly talk about Torah for what it is, we will get stuck. If we want people to grow through this moment in their spiritual place, they have to have the permission to, to say, no, this part of Torah, this comes from the ego of men. This part of Torah, that's beautiful. And, it,
1: and you use the word growth, which I know is very special. And what he presents is all about growth.
0: Mm-hmm. And you and I study Torah every Saturday morning, and uh, and there's a wide range of of approaches to the text in that room. And it's interesting to watch the consistency of folks who are on a path and aren't ready yet to look at the text differently, who will get stuck in the same ideas or the same challenges over and over again and aren't able to. It'd be interesting to read this letter with that Saturday morning Torah group. Oh, well, Leslie, this was a fabulous conversation. I'm so glad that you agreed to have this discussion with me. You brought even more than I knew to expect from you. And I'm so glad that everyone else joined us for this conversation as well. You can click below for a transcript of today's discussion and you'll find some links to the materials that we've mentioned. Each week, I try to leave you with a, an idea to consider for our next conversation. The next letter is about mitzvot, commandments. And I wonder if you'll come with some sense of what it is that gives you the feeling of commandedness. What are you absolutely clear of? is not a choice for you in your life, but is your own commandment. If you enjoyed this conversation and you would like to be notified of new episodes as they come out, you can click on the subscribe button and most certainly be sure to share this podcast with anyone you know who would enjoy exploring spirituality too. But then after that, make sure that you reach out to them to have the conversation yourselves. And until next time, all you heretics out there, stand proud.